Okay, so whatever we say, we'll invite Steve to come back and yell at us again for getting. Oh, let's just let's just bait him in the show without actually telling him, without actually saying we're baiting him. Let's just bait him through the whole show. <laughs> That's hilarious. Nice. Welcome to the Ruby Rogues Podcast. I'll be your host today. I'm James Edward Gray II. Uh, Chuck can't be with us today. He had to uh, take his kids to school, which just proves his priorities are all screwed up. I wonder if that's a metaphor. Oh, oh, it's a metaphor? Was it a euphemism? Yeah, euphemism, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, With us today, as you can tell, because he's already interrupting me, is David Brady. Hi, I'm David Brady, and I interrupt people. Uh, also, Josh Tusser. Hi, I'm David Brady, and I interrupt people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's going to be that kind of episode. Hey, yes. hey guys, it's, it's Josh. Good morning. <laughs> and I'm D. Grimm. Hello again. He was waiting for me. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, he was afraid. David put the fear in him. Um, he, was, he wasn't waiting for the collision to back off and retry. Right. <laughs> this is um, episode 37.0.1, Release Candidate 3, uh, today, where we will be discussing versioning and the release process uh, and things like that. This topic was uh, Josh Susser's, so I'm going to let him tell us where we're going with it. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so... Um... Versioning and release process, um, obviously uh, two intimately related topics. And uh, I asked uh, yesterday on Twitter for some particular questions people had around these topics. So uh, we're going to be trying to address those things as we go. I think we can get to most of those. Uh, So uh, versioning is all about the numbers that you put on your package and, um, you know, your library or your gem or your application or your API. And... Uh, they get used for a, a couple different uh, purposes, and then release process is uh, at some level it's the moment at which you're changing the numbers on your version. Uh, but the process around that and how to how to make the two fit together as painlessly as possible for your consumers. How's that sound, James? Sounded awesome to me. Yeah, I, I, I'm all to find out today. So, Josh, <laughs> my main question is what, what made you want to talk about this? Oh, what made me want to talk about this? Um, my ongoing fury around the Rails, uh, the Rails project and the lack of a coherent release process. <laughs> How about that? Say, now, Josh, you promised us a good rant. Uh, it's, you know. <laughs> oh, I'll get there. I'll get there. Okay, you, we'll do it in version two. Yeah. Right. Well, 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 Josh. Just to help you along, um, hasn't HTML5 proven that release processes and versioning don't matter anymore? No. Wait. What? <laughs> what are you talking HTML, about? HTML5 is 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 officially now a an ongoing rolling sort of troll uh, mystery standard that uh, that you know it's it, they 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 officially stopped working towards like a un html5 definition and it is now defined as whatever we put in the standard last week 
for forever for all eternity not like it's going not like they're going to put a put a fork in it and it's done at some time but it's just it's just an ongoing standard that keeps being added to wait so they managed to skip like the qa and the ratification process what did they go agile do we have essentially do we have am i the only one who knows about this it's it's (laughs) continuous standardization it's like continuous deployment for standardization <laughs> this is nice. brilliant. Nice. This is brilliant. I wholeheartedly endorse this idea, and I realize that that's a scathing indictment. <laughs> Actually, I you know I'm I'm not a parent. I'll never have children. But I think this is sort of like um, redefining the rules so that when you're on a road trip, whenever your children ask, "Are we there yet?" you say yes. That's awesome. <laughs> 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 what? Wait, how does it fit in? Because the other thing kids say is, "I have to pee." How does that fit in? Well, it's the same thing, right? You know. Yeah, go uh, right ahead. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story about that that I'm not going to tell. <laughs> okay, thanks. In the next version. Yep. Uh, so, uh, okay. Um, yeah. So that the HTML5 nonsense just sounds uh, silly to me. It's like they're 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 not co- uh, admitting the fact that there are actually uh, versions that matter there and that. You know, you need something in the DOM so that your version of JavaScript can talk to it and they can agree and be compatible and know how to interoperate, which is really what this is all about. If you were only writing one piece of software that never had to interact with any other piece of software, nobody would give a crap what version it was. And and a lot of times you go to a website and that's your experience. You know, I go to, you know, github.com. And I don't care what version the website is. I don't have any software that's interacting with the UI or what have you. So that's, you know, the, you don't need versions for that. P- people don't interact with versions of software <clears throat> that way. I mean, you know, I can, I can fire up a version of, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, Safari four versus Safari five. And as a user, I'll see differences in how the application operates. Um, but that, that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about no. uh, versioning and, and releases. Yeah. So can I, can I do a micro rant about versioning? Sure. Oh, please do. This is, this is speci- and this is relevant to Ruby. If if you're releasing a gem, there's a couple of different ways that you can version your product. One way is that you can go into your gem spec and you can say this is version 1.2.3, yada 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 yada. The other way that's really really common is to have like an ERB file um, that. Uh, gets compiled into your gem spec by a rake task and whatnot, and you have a version.yaml file somewhere in your project that gets included. And you've got rake, ta- rake tasks to increment and decrement your whatever your versions and all this all this stuff. Here is my rant. If I come to your website, if I if excuse me, if I come to your GitHub page and I'm looking at your source code and I can see gemspec.erb, I know that I'm not going to be able to find the version number inside that file. Please, 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 for the mother of all that is holy, put your version.yaml file in the root of your project, or 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 let's or or, or let's make a rolling standard about where it should go. Uh, it makes me absolutely bat poop crazy when the version.yaml file, and I've seen this, is three directories deep in the the file tree. There's no freaking way to find out what version this I just checked out of GitHub without actually cloning the project and building the gem and seeing what version comes out. Don't do that. I think, uh, is it Bundler that actually when you make a new gem, it, it goes ahead and makes the the constant and then the version file under that header mm-hmm. with the content? Really? 
Yeah, that Butler will do that. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a version .rb file, right. and it yeah. and it and it goes under the top level uh, namespace directory. So if, if you make a project called you know uh, all I can think of is Nick's example from last time, Rufflecopter. Uh, then it'll make the Rufflecopter module that should contain everything, and then it, under that, it'll put a version.rb file, which just sets a constant. In That's awesome. And, and I think actually... version.rb is a little less silly than a YAML file, too. Yeah, I'm, me too, I'm right? okay with either. I'm okay with either. As long as it, there's a file that I can see on your GitHub project homepage or one directory down, like in lib or wherever it's supposed to be, that's named version, and I can click on it from the GitHub website, I'm happy. Because oh, I, I, I want to know version. Okay, okay, okay. So, 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 so we're at the point where David's happy. Let's, let's end the micro rant and talk about what versioning actually <sighs> is. <laughs> okay. Okay, but just to, just to be clear, Bundler fails David's test because... Uh, it would be three directories down, lib, or two directories down, lib, then, then rufflecopter, then... Are you serious? Are you serious? Yeah, but, but he knows how to find it now. So yeah, that's the good part, it. is it's in a standard place. So. I'm kind of out of my happy place. Ouch. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the part where Dave hangs up on all I'm, of I'm normally yes, I'm normally in the tank for both RVM and Bundler, and I'm in the tank for using both at the same time, which makes a lot of people like James crazy. Um, well, crazier. And yeah, that's all there is to say about that. I, I need to end my rant. Josh, you were about to give us a definition of versioning. Well, I, I, I'm going to um, link up uh, semver.org and... Uh, so Tom Preston Werner wrote up this nice description of uh, what he titled semantic versioning. And, uh, you know, this is now up to version 2.0.0-rc.1. Which is great. Which <laughs> yeah. is great. Oh. That's a little meta. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the, the, the approach in, in what Tom writes up as semantic versioning is not new uh, you know, Tom, I think, has done a good job at documenting this, but uh, this is very similar to what was talked about in the Java publications in the 90s. So the, when you see one of these number.number.number versions, uh, then the, the positions in, the, in that string of digits uh, mean different kind of things. So the first number is the major version, second is the minor, and the third is the patch, and then after that is the pre-release information. <clears throat> and the, the, since they're numbers, you can order them, right? So two is greater than one. So uh, version two follows version one. Great. And when, so, so the numbers, the important thing about having version numbers that uh, follow this standard is that you can tell which version of the software your client software is going to be compatible with. So the the major version is where uh, big discontinuities and uh, breaking off backward compatibility falls. Um, the minor version is where you're changing the API and adding features. And the patch version is where you're not disturbing compatibility at all and you're just fixing bugs. So you're not adding any new features. You're not changing the, the external API. So I want to I want to I want to pin you down here, Josh. The yeah. minor the minor version, the middle number. Yeah. If you if you increment that, mm-hmm. client clients that are have been using a lower middle number should still work. Correct. Yeah. Yes. 
you are adding, you are not breaking backwards compatibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you if your if your old clients, if the clients who are using the 2.0.0 version try and use the 2.1.0 version, they should still work. You shouldn't, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, that's a contract. So, right. Um, right. And so, and, what 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 good is the micro version then? <clears throat> uh, the oh, the patch version. Yeah. Well, the yeah. yeah. <clears throat> right, so yeah, that mic- would, I, it's micro in the old Microsoft and Java books. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would be something like if you have a bug in your in your library, and people have to do things to work around it. You know, oh great, you know, I can't I can't put capital letters in that string that I submitted. And then you have to put a workaround in your in your client code that makes everything downcase before you call the API. What, then, uh, you know, so if they have a patch release that fixes that bug, then, you know, oh, great, I have client code. It doesn't need to be doing the down case before I call the, the API. Mm-hmm. So that, that lets you know, uh, you know, do you have to keep doing your workarounds or can you, yeah. can you move so forward? So specifically, patch versions do not add any new functionality. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Okay. Which, which so, is what Josh was trying to say. Right. Okay. And so this also bleeds over into the release process because the things that come after patch and uh, in in Semver, uh, Tom is using dashes, uh, and I I kind of hate that. <laughs> it's the um, and, and pluses. Yeah, dashes and plus, yeah. pluses. I I don't think those things um, should be used in version numbers. They don't add any anything semantically. And it makes uh, processing the version numbers in software a little bit harder. And this means know, that Ruby Ruby does not follow this. Yeah, well, this is a release candidate, so I guess it's the time to respond to this uh, this draft. So, there's a lot of things I want to say there. Um, what what do you like to use instead of dashes, Josh? Just dots. Yeah, just dots. The, the, why do you need more than one delimiter? Gotcha. So then you you would mm-hmm. just split on the dot and work with that basically. Uh, I think one argument for it is is um, anything um, the dot delimiters are for versions which are um, compared uh, numerically. Yeah, they're sortable. So you, you, yeah, yeah. You, well, I think you, they're all supposed to be sortable, um, mm-hmm. but but if but I think the the dash or plus might be um, splitting off the part which may be a string. Um, which you see this in like um, Debian software versions, um, you know, where, where the sort of the you know you have the Debian version, and then if if you have um, some slight patches on the Ubuntu version of a pack, package, you'll you'll see. I think it's I think it's like dash Ubuntu one, Ubuntu two, Ubuntu three. You know, if you have if you have the the down, downstream um, patch versions. Yeah. Okay. So. So David asked, uh, "Does Ruby follow this?" Uh, well, actually, I want to end before I we jump to that. Uh, I want to be gratuitously clever because I never get the chance to do this. Um, the reason why semantic versioning has dashes and pluses in it is because the data contained after the dashes and plus has a different semantic meaning. Ha! And I use the word semantic right there in the definition. Um, <laughs> we're so we're so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. How, however, the argument, like in the case of Ruby. And this will seg nicely into James. It could 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 be made that instead of Ruby one dot nine dot two dash p two ninety, it really could be one dot nine dot two dot two ninety. True, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I I just wanted to point out earlier we were kind of talking about the names of the different parts of the version. Yeah. Uh, uh, I I think usually. Uh, it, 
What did, what did you call them? You called it major, minor, and patch. Is that what you did, Josh? Well, that's what Semvert uh, calls it. Semvert does. Gotcha. M- major, minor, micro is also fairly standard in some circles. Yeah, yeah I was gonna, I was going to say Pearl, I think, usually calls them major, minor, and teeny. <laughs> oh, that's tiny. awesome. I've, I've seen tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the only danger with major, minor, and micro is that um, there's also... Uh, if if you're pulling this from the old Microsoft days, there's occasionally a fourth number, and that is either the build number or the patch number, and so there you get a naming conflict with Semver. So I'm I'm going to drink the Kool Aid. I'm going to get on the bandwagon. I'm going to stop saying micro. I'm going to say patch to refer to the third number, mm-hmm. and uh, you know build and whatever uh, you know uh, stream of consciousness annotation. Uh, yeah. The right. thing is, <clears throat> right. So, so, so the in looking at the this uh, Semver update, which I haven't looked at in a long time, so the plus and minus stuff was new to me. Uh, I think the plus and minus does have some utility because it um, gets you out of the numeric without having to fully specify all the digits. So, if you had just like version two dot with a build, then mm-hmm. you wouldn't need to say two dot in the build. And yeah. I guess that's okay. Um, that, so, however. Uh, I know that the Ruby the Ruby Gems version system does not does not support the plus and the dash as distinct from dot separators. So mm-hmm. uh, if 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 Ruby is going to be compliant with this, we're going to need to go fix that. And 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 I'll and, and while I'm mentioning that, I'll just cop to the fact that I'm kind of responsible for the fact that there are non-numeric ways of versioning Ruby Gems. Because <laughs> the, the and this was uh, this was a rant response. Where uh, I, w- I got really tired of the Rails team releasing, uh, like version two, the of Rails was released with the release candidate being numbered one dot nine dot nine nine, which just drove me freaking insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it made uh, using Ruby gems very hard because you, oh okay, what's compatible and how do I. Anyway, there was such a huge discontinuity. There's a huge discontinuity between 1.9 and 2.0 in the semantic versioning system. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you can't really deal with the pre-release stuff that way. So the, the logical way to do that is to create uh, a way to express that you have a pre-release version in the actual version. Mm-hmm. And that's what RubyGem supports now. So when you, call, when you do gem install uh, rafflecopter uh, dash dash pre, that means it will go find a version of the library that includes the uh, alpha forms of the version number. Mm-hmm. And, it assume, and it assumes that anything that's just like 2.0.1 is a release version, not a pre-release version. So I just want to point out that there is actually a Semver gem. And because I'm, I'm looking wow. at this and I'm thinking somebody needs to write the spaceship operator for this so that I don't have to figure out how to sort two version numbers. And <laughs> then I thought, I bet there's a gem that does this. And Semver does that. And it also uh, gives you the tools to manipulate major, minor, patch, etc. So, so the, the version class that's built into the RubyGems package mm-hmm. also has a spaceship operator. Okay. So you, but does it, so you, you can does just it support do like, the, the patching thing like you said? It, well, it supports pre-release. It doesn't support the plus and minus as far as I know. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you can just do, you know, RubyGems, you know, colon, colon, version, new, and then, you know, compare them using the spaceship operator. So that's uh, it's kind of a good point. We're talking about comparing version numbers. Uh, 
the Ruby core team has some kind of different ideas about versioning. Um, and some of those are not well understood. So I, I will try to explain it uh, from their point of view as best I can. Um, first of all, they believe that they're, you know, it's, it's number dot number dot number and that none of those numbers should ever exceed nine. Um, because then you can't sort them as strings. Anymore. You can't sort. You can't sort them ascubetically. Yeah. Right. So, but you can't. You can't. You can't sort semver ascubetically either, though, because the patches will come after. That, that's true. I didn't say it was right or wrong. I just yeah. said that mm-hmm. that's the way it is. I I am sympathetic to it. I wish that we could sort them as strings, or maybe another solution would be to include of something with Ruby that can correctly parse version strings so that we can compare them, which I guess we're kind of there now since Josh said uh, Ruby gems can do the comparison and Ruby gems now ships with Ruby. So I, I guess we've kind of reached that point. I, my complaint was that if we had versions that didn't sort as strings and then Ruby doesn't include anything to deal with versions, that kind of sucks, right? Yeah. So. Basically, what we're saying is build your own every time, and yeah, that's going to work well. You know? Right. So, <laughs> no, okay. uh, no, you don't want that. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, that is one of the points, and that's one of the reasons uh, it, uh, for kind of the whole Ruby 1.9 issue and, and stuff like that. Uh, one of the other things um, that uh, Ruby takes kind of an unusual uh, approach to in versioning uh, recently is it used to be that the odd uh, versions were used as... Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Exper- experimental. Yeah, yeah, experimental branches. No, see, this is the thing that kills me. Parity error. Parity error. Even numbers are uh, test good. And, and good luck to you, <laughs> and the odd numbers are the ones that work. And see, Josh, you and I, you're out of parity, so... Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so the, the issue, though, that... Uh, they didn't like about that because they believe no version should be, you know, above nine. They were losing half of their versions uh, to that, and they they didn't like that. So uh, they've adopted a new rule uh, that they use, which is that the patch level zero is the experimental version, and then above that. So that's why you had Ruby dot one Ruby one nine zero was the experimental version of Ruby 1.9. And the mm-hmm. first release to the public was Ruby.1.9.1. Yeah. I, I, I don't think there's anything horribly wrong with that, but I mean, doesn't Python do the same thing? I don't know. That's a good question. Oh, I, I thought it was like almost almost a ubiquitous standard in Linux. Hmm. The, the, the Linux standard is using the odd numbers for the... Uh, Experimentation. Experimentation. Is that what you meant? Yeah. That, I that, I thought it was the other way around, but okay. No, it's, it's which explains so much about my software. <laughs> and I was right, just about the wrong thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so okay, so so uh, we we have a lot to cover. So let's let's keep moving forward here. That so uh, a binary clock is is right half of the day. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, so release process. The the reason why. Uh, we want to have these uh, alphanumeric numbers is that uh, – can I say alphanumeric number? Alpha, alphanumeric version identifiers is uh, to enable us to, uh, to tag specific releases with um, 
some extra semantic information about where they are in the release process. So released code should always like, – like the, the fully released code should just be numbers. There shouldn't be any alphanumerics in there except I guess in the case of, um, of Ruby where you put a P on the patch release, mm-hmm. which, which uh, I, fr- fr- frankly, I don't, I don't agree with that convention. But, you know, it's understood enough that it's not a problem for people. The, uh, and you don't install Ruby using Ruby gems, so that's not a problem. Right. The, so in, in the release process, there are certain stages that you go through. And what we're going to talk about here today, uh, I wouldn't call it authoritative. It's just, you know, our experience of, of things. I don't Let's call know. it partisan. Okay. <laughs> you know, this is, let's take a side. And people that disagree with us, yeah. there's five of us. We can probably take them. Occupy releases. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, in, the, in the development process... There's when you, you know when you're writing the code and you're developing it internally and you're not releasing that so you don't need a release number on it or a version number and then there's where you, when you want to start putting it out there and having it interact with other pieces of software and get installed by by your automated software that installs things for you Dave is there a good name for that automated James. software that installs things for you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there ought to be. Your package system. Okay. Yeah, so, so. Why does uh, every every conversation with you end up ending up being about my package? Or do I make it that way? It's you, Dave. It's me. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, so the... Um, so the, there's a couple stages we can talk about. There's, there's the... Um, it, the, and the, the, probably the most important one is the release candidate. But leading up to the release candidate, you have things like your development builds. And then th- there's a couple ways you can do this. There's there's development builds. And oftentimes those are, if you're in a big or like enterprise development organization, those might be the things that development tags and then you throw over the wall to QA for, for them to test. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you get a good test off of that. Or... or um, if you're using a CI system, you can do this in an automated fashion. I worked in a place where uh, every build that CI went through that was green got a tag and and got a version number because mm. it went through CI, and okay. and uh, and then that became a build artifact that could be you know that you could go and do acceptance with and do acceptance testing, and the the interesting thing is that you can have a build artifact like that, which is exactly the same bits throughout the whole process that you can uh, you can promote its version number from one category to another so okay this is a this is a development build we're promoting this to a testing build we're promoting this to something that we're going to push out to staging and the, and at different times in the process you might have the same build artifact and promote its version number mm-hmm. uh, that's that's one way of doing it did I prior prior to uh, everybody's everybody saying switching to git um, actually, I guess Subversion had had revision numbers, but oh yeah. Uh, uh, prior to like, like I've used systems like like uh, oh God help me, uh, uh, VSS Visual Source Safe, which mm-hmm. didn't really expose any kind of commit number index, and so build numbers were critical uh, mm-hmm. because there was there was no way for Q- QA to communicate back to you which version was broken. Um, I'm a lot less. Uh, 
dictatorial about thou shalt you know tag and release every freaking thing that comes out of the developers now that we can just refer to it by a SHA hash or by a revision number. Yeah, it definitely makes things easier. Yeah. So, the, d- James Avdi, have have you worked in systems where they do the promoting build numbers and to versions and release numbers? Not anything that uh, specific. No. Okay. Yeah. I actually. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll give Avi a chance. I, I have a funny story, though. It's short. Um. Yeah. Not not off the top of my head. Okay. Not, okay. not build numbers to version yeah. numbers. It, it it seems like something that only happens in in bigger organizations where you have yeah. a lot of people who have to get their hands on the same the same build to validate yeah. it for release. Actually, I mean that's that's not completely true. Um. I, I think it's it's just sort of in in the dim recesses of my memory. I've definitely yeah. I, I mean, I've definitely actually cut some some like you know build number blah 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 CDs that were officially you know this is the CD that we deliver to the client and stuff like that. Um, and there's all kinds of weird stuff that goes on in the really big organizations because um, because of like old <laughs> old old revisioning standards that predate. Um, modern revision mm-hmm. systems you know like like uh in order to cut a release we must print out all the source code and then photocopy it and then put it in a fo- in a in a box yes yes i'm adopting that there's a daily wtf in which the, cl- the client was a government small eastern european government and part of the spec required that they have not less than one meter of documentation <laughs> And so they printed out the code in like a twenty-four point font um, and stacked it for him. So, well, which, well which... At, at some for some government contracts, you have to have, um, or at least you used to have to have figures. Like for every deliverable, there would be yeah. a figure which would depict it. You know, yeah. which is basically wow. like a depicting the deliverable, which makes sense for a lot of the hardware. Um, you know, if you've got like a radar dipole, you know, you have a figure that depicts the dipole. Yeah. Um, but uh, what do you depict <laughs> software? You, well, what you do is you is you have figures which depict a three and a three and a half inch floppy disk. Yep. yep. Nice. <laughs> and here is a tangent, but <laughs> yes. I, I, I remember I remember drawing some figures for patent applications that was basically two with a line between them. Nice. <laughs> Were you patenting the short shortest distance? <laughs> I there was an interface involved. There was an interface. Okay. Nice. Okay. So this actually touches on my my funny story about version numbers, which is that you know once people get involved, it all goes political. Uh, I, I worked at a wasn't a government contractor, but it was a, it was fabrication software, and so it was kind of big business, a lot of money going around, a lot of semiconductors going around the fab and that kind of thing. And we had contracted out to a third party company in Austria to build them a robot controller to move these wafers around their fab. And we were experimenting. We were They had a, an experimental thing that they were writing. We had an experimental thing that we were writing. And it became critical for us to be able to get bugs back from the Austria team and go, okay, which exact build were you using? And so I started putting the build number on the splash screen. So, you know, it said, you know, 1.0.0.4219 you know, or whatever. And... Um, that got flunked by our senior management because they did not want the customer to know that it had taken us 4,219 attempts to build the software. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Every time I hit F12, it makes a new copy, of, you know, a new build of this thing. I'm doing this 100 times a day. And they're like, yeah, stop doing that. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll, I, I need the build number 
I'll tell you what. What if that's a random number? And so I actually built a database of of random release numbers. And yeah, heaven help us. You, you could have just used the Git SHA. It, this was like in 2004, but yeah. Um, but yeah, there was, you could, there was just, this... you could have just invented Git and then used the Git SHA. That's right. Yeah. Why didn't you do that? I actually kind of did because the what I ended up doing was taking like the last 16 digits of the MD5 checksum of like all the source code and uh, heaven help us. So I have a, I have a couple of questions. Um, here, here's one we'll go around the horn on. Is there anything special about version 1.0.0? <laughs> yes. And, and, and related to that, why is Rake not version 1.0 yet? <laughs> yeah, how many years do you need? Jim? I think Jim has actually been making some noises about about putting out a 1.0. Rake sure. new how, forever. How many... How many years does software have to be used by thousands of people as the as like one of the core pieces of the infrastructure of a language <laughs> before you're willing to state that it's 1.0? <laughs> I think Jim should just start answering the question, at, you know, why isn't Rake 1.0? And he's going to like, people are still using that? <laughs> so, 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 so implicit in that question is the, is the assumption that there is something special about uh, 1.0. So what is special about 1.0? Uh, so, so 1.0 is where in the semantic versioning process, the, uh, you sort of tighten up the screws on backward compatibility requirements. So, you, so what we're saying is if, you, if you're in version.0.6.4, you can still decide, oh, I'm going about this all wrong, totally screw everything up and call that 0.7.0 or something. Yeah, I think that's true. The, I, yeah. I don't know what the... Yeah, what does the Semver spec here say about version, you know, major zero? Oh, it says, how do I know when to release 1.0.0? And it says, um, if you have a stable API in which users depend, you should be 1.0.0. If you're worrying a lot about backwards compatibility, you should already be 1.0.0. Yeah, so if you're, if you're not making any guarantees about 1.0 or about backward compatibility, then you should be, you know, zero dot something. Yeah. And I now, don't think I, people should be afraid of, of version one. I mean... I've I've had a few gems that I released at one po- at one point because I they were in use in production at that point you know they've been extracted out of 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 a project and then and then used in that project and they were in use in production and I considered you know the API might not have been optimal or it might not have been you know the API I imagine it one day having but it's stable and so when I released the gem I released it at one point I've got other gems that are very definitely zero versions because I'm I'm you know rapidly iterating on them. Yeah. Okay. So, so I want to finish just up the the stuff about the non like crazy enterprise way of doing the release num- release process because it, it, it's important and 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 I have a whole rant behind it. So. <laughs> so Multi rant. Yeah. So the. Uh, with the whole thing I talked about with promoting build numbers of of uh, build artifacts, et cetera, uh, set that aside for a moment and let's just talk about how we how we deal with things in the Ruby world. And that's that. It, it, and you know, Rails is a great thing to look at because they get a lot of it right and they also get a lot of it wrong. And and when so when you're releasing a framework or a library and you want to try it out working with other pieces of software, that's a great time to give it an alpha release number. And alpha just basically says, I, 
I, I want to put a number on this so I can start testing the interaction with either people or other pieces of software. And it, you're not nailing down much of anything when you say alpha, except you probably want it to be very close to feature complete because what's the point of starting to test something if you're going to keep changing it a lot? And then as you as you broaden the circle to include the general public, that's when you want to make it beta. So a bit, so you very rarely see anything with an alpha release on the net because alpha is meant to be a small circle of people and it's easier to manage. Then you do a beta release that can be that can be either be a private beta or a public beta depending on how you, how many people you you want involved in the, reviewing your beta quality software. Uh, but generally, it's a much bigger circle than alpha. And uh, beta, you probably want that to be feature complete because you want your API to be stable, you want your UI to be stable, so that you you're not um, you don't have a moving target for people to evaluate and to and to test. And then once you feel good enough about the basic, so at, definitely at the end of the beta process, you want to be feature complete. You want your ABI, your API, not to be changing anymore. You don't want to be changing what the parameters or arguments are to uh, API calls or changing what goes on in the UI. The, and at that point, you call it a release candidate. And release candidate means this is our best guess at what we're going to be shipping. Have at it find critical bugs. If we find critical bugs, that by definition, that means we have to fix them. And then at that point, we'll roll out a new release candidate and start that start that clock going again. And if we find bugs that we don't think are critical, we'll just you know, hang on to them for the next release. And so, so in terms of Rails, they, they get some of that right. And one of the things they've been doing in recent releases that I like is that when they come out with a release candidate and then they realize and they realize, oh, there's something we have to change, they reset the clock. It's like a two week clock. They reset that and then they uh, then they get more feedback. And if they come up with anything critical in that time, they reset it again. Otherwise, they'll uh, release it at the end of that two week baking period. The thing that they get wrong, and this is really huge, is that when when the rails core team releases a release candidate that's effectively a beta release for them because they are not saying here's our best guess at what we're releasing they're saying oh we're getting close to wanting to release a new a new version of rails give us you know start giving us public feedback on what we're doing and we will happily change the api willy-nilly uh, you know during the release candidate process mm -hmm. And and I, I have a, no end of ranting about that. <laughs> which is a good thing to do, but it's the wrong name for it, is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. That should be a beta release. That that's you know by definition that is the beta release of of the new version of Rails. So just to make sure we get that right in the hate mail, Josh thinks you guys are wrong, Rails Core. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just, and, and 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 at least they're doing a better job now than they were a couple of years ago, where it, it was, you know, it was like a wild west shootout as, as things changed during the release process. And and the people behind, you know, a, a lot of people on the Rails core team are 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 getting this right and they have the right attitude. And I'm just not sure why it's not like baked into the process. Yeah. 
when and and I, I get that it's a political thing, as David said. As soon as you get people involved in anything, it becomes politics. And yeah. some of it is just trying to get people to who are using Rails to pay enough attention to a release to give them feedback. And and it may be that everyone on the on the Rails core team understands what I just talked about and would prefer to do things that way. And they're just grappling with the reality of trying to get you know thousands of of people with Rails applications to pay enough attention to a release candidate to test their software with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at any particular person that that they're incompetent or don't know what's going on. It just drives me a little crazy that the release the release process is getting abused this way and that it's educating a lot of web developers in poor practices. Right. Yeah. So that that's the end of my rant about that. <laughs> so That's it. You're all wrong. I'm sure we'll get some great email about that. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I am up I'm up for a fight this week. All right. <laughs> uh, all those emails can be directed to Josh, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what's your what's your email address, James? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did want to hit a couple other questions that we were asked uh, over Twitter. Some of them I really liked. Um, uh, at the risk of calling down the wrath of Steve Klobnik, uh one of the uh, questions that we were asked is, "What is the proper way to version an API?" Um, and so I've been desperately looking it up because I remember that. Steve Klobnik said, you never, ever, ever do it in a URL, which is what we always see, right? The, the V1, V2, and the URL. Um, and I was looking up what the correct place to put it, and I think I found it. I knew it was in one of the headers, but I couldn't remember which one. I, I believe it's the accept header where it's supposed to go. But uh, Yeah, it's all about the content type. It's really um, no different than the web has always worked. Uh, because browsers, whenever they re- request something, they say, "Here are um, here are some some content types that I support, yeah. and um, and and here's the order that I support them in. I, I like this one better than that one, and I like you know I like X t- maybe I like XHTML better than HTML, maybe I like H um, you know and stuff like that, um, and." The you know and that's that's what content negotiation is all about. And the server looks at that and says, "Oh, okay, this this client supports this level of stuff, mm-hmm. and um, or at least wants this level of stuff. So I'm going to give it I'm going to give it this resource which which complies with with what it was written to mm-hmm. understand. It was written to expect. And if you're doing if you're really doing REST, which means you're you know you're not constructing URLs, you're following links in your AP, uh, in your client." Um, then that'll work because you know you ask for the the root node or whatever um, uh, of the API and it serves you out a document based on what your client says it supports and that has has appropriate links in it and then all the other resources or transitions that you want to do you do by following links from that um, you know where it breaks down is where you start wanting to construct URLs on the client side and then um, you know and and then the server doesn't really have any options because it can't tell you how to you know it can't say it can't decide. Oh, you know this. The the location of this resource has changed, um, but you know I'll just update the links um, in in what I send out. That's 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 kind of the core of my my. Are you freaking kidding me here? Which is that? How do I type the head when I'm when I when I open up a browser? How do I type the version number into the URL if I can't type the version number? And of course, the glib answer is that well, this is for machine consumable stuff and. 
bullcrap. I'm a machine. I, I want to be able to look at this and, and debug it and, and figure out what the hell's going on. Well, that's and, what Kernel and, is for. I agree that David Brady is a machine. I just Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, a hopelessly defective and ill-conceived machine, sure. Um, like, like, like a death, death ray that runs on uh, golden retriever puppies or something. Sent back from the future, but we do not yet know the purpose. Nerd moment here. You remember in the Matrix when Neo is learning how to uh, how to do kung fu by getting hooked into the chair on, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> on the on the on the ship, um, and uh, what the what the guy says about him in terms of admiration is he's a machine. He's a machine. It's like in their yeah. in their culture, wouldn't that have been a serious insult? Yeah, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like hey, we don't okay. use the M word. <laughs> yeah. Abdi, if I'm understanding correctly, if you wanted to have, like, say, a version one and a version two of your API and say maybe it served, you know, uh, XML and JSON. So if you wanted the JSON for the version two, your accept header should be uh, application slash JSON dash V2 or something like that. Is that? Um, well, yeah, it would be something along the line. You know, if if my application is is um, you know, is Avdi, it might be something along the lines of VND dot Avdi dot dot whatever the actual you know resource type is, um, V2 plus JSON. Um, that's one way of doing it. Um, a little known fact about um, uh, about content types is they can actually take parameters. You can actually include parameters, like you can include a car set, care set parameter in some uh, content types. Um, so another possible way of doing it is to actually have a, a version parameter in the content type. Uh, unfortunately, this is something that, last I checked, Rails totally does not support. Um, but uh, but there's actually... Um, I, I, um, I can include a link um, in the show notes which talks about this approach a little bit. Yeah. Okay. This bugs me. And, and, maybe, and maybe it's just because it's different from what I expect and because the tool support isn't really there. This, this really feels like one of those ideological windmills that we want to tilt at. Um, I don't know. We, we said in the, in the pre-show that we were going to troll uh, Steve Klobnik as much as possible. So, um, <laughs> so next week, very likely, will be Steve Klobnik coming back to yell at yes. again for everything we got wrong. Just so you yep. Know. Yep. And I will be. Sh- I'll be sure in four days to go help out at the preschool so that uh, I can get through the incubation period and be out sick for the show next week. <laughs> so that so Steve can burn me in effigy. I don't. I don't know. For for me, it's just like. Like like Avdi said, the versioning stuff isn't there in Rails, so it isn't really easy to to link to these URLs and to change the version. Uh, it's not really clearly defined. You know, if if I request version three o three and the server has three one three, is that an acceptable return type? Um, is there a min max negotiation? Does the version numbering have to match? And, well, there's 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 plenty of of reading material in the uh, in RFC twenty six sixteen. There's plenty of reading material on the um, the content negotiation algorithm, uh, which is mm-hmm. is pretty carefully specified. Which uh, RFC? Twenty six sixteen. Twenty six sixteen. I'm gonna go read it. I'll check. I'll totally yeah. fact check so, you. So, so, so Avdi, <laughs> one of the one of the variations on this that uh, I've read about, but I haven't seen play out in in the wild is doing versioning using the uh, host name in the URL. Huh. So that, 
it, where and and one of the main things I saw uh, along this line is that Netflix started changing their API versioning by adding different endpoints, you know, different hosts for the UR, <laughs> URL to have different flavors of the of a of clients talk to different versions of the API. Right. And and that seems to uh, keep things happy in terms of the server can rewrite URLs because all it's changing is the path part of the URL. And that lets the client uh, have some ability to specify uh, kind of which which semantic version of the API that it wants to talk to. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It also so, still still passes David Brady's test of I'd like to be able to copy this and paste it into my browser kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, I, so, so, I, I have to call a flag on the, on on Avdi's play for RFC twenty six sixteen. This has nothing to do with uh, uh, API versioning. It's just the HTTP one dot one protocol, which also supports supports URI. So uh, I I cite the same source to you, sir, as my defense. I I, I don't understand that <laughs> argument at all, but we can discuss that later. I, I think um, the short version is 2616 uh, provides a framework for doing it either way, and Steve Klobnik has a very strong opinion about how it should well, be yeah, done, I, and, he, and he's smarter than me, so we, he may be right. Well, um, you, you were asking specifically about, um, about how the negotiation is done uh, oh, okay. of okay. versions of, of content, and that was my answer. Ah, um, okay. Is that it's very well specified. Okay, so you're uh, also smarter than me. All right, never mind. <laughs> um, Josh and James, you're next. But <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know, there's there's the, there's a, there's a sort of a rant here um, uh, that brings things back to programming APIs a little bit, and I think is relevant to to the versioning dis- discussion as a whole. Um, the the issue um, the issue with with the restful APIs is when is when you specify your API in terms of this is how you will construct all the URLs um, this is where all the resources are found um, you drastically limit the flexibility on the server side because it has to continually support um, the client's sort of the client's imaginary object model of how your your servers work um, and there's an analog to this in um, in programmatic APIs, which is where uh, the way you use the API is to construct um, lots of objects directly. Uh, so you have, you know, so the way that you create something in the API is you say, you know, mylib colon colon foo colon colon bar dot new, um, which is basically the same exact thing. Um, as, as constructing that URL, you are putting a, a big, um, a big structural dependency in that client code on, you know, that, you know, that the, uh, that the, the API now has to support for, for, you know, for a very long time, which is that it has to have classes structured in this particular way. You know, it has to have that, that foo namespace, you know, that foo module, and then colon colon bar module, and then it has to have the, you know, the baz class, which, um, you know, and and it really limits the ability of, of APIs to to move things around. So, sort of, I think this is related to versioning. Um, you you buy yourself a lot of flexibility if you don't tie your clients to constructing their own objects everywhere and, and just telling them which class they need to construct. If you can, you know, if you can make 
um, all the, the object construction available um, from like the, the, the root module or something like that in some way that's a little bit more dynamic. Um, it makes it a lot easier to, to move forward on, on, your, uh, on your versions. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense, guys? It, it does, and it actually uh, – I, I find myself in this weird spot where I still disagree with it, but I know that I'm going to change my mind and agree with it for a very specific uh, reason, and that is that by putting the version number in the content header instead of in the URL, like you said, it, it lets you create the same object everywhere. Now, the downside is is that this is now an implicit thing. And you might get back the wrong version. You might get back a version you weren't expecting. And that's my reason for hating it. And that's the reason Python users hate Ruby. Everything is implicit and everything should be explicit. And my defense of Ruby is that once you understand, once everybody understands that that's how it is, explicit is just noise. And so I disagree with it. I'm going to go learn it and study it and play with it. And I will probably agree with it soon. So uh, we all know I'm terrible uh, compared to Chuck as far as tracking time, and I think we're uh, seriously in danger of running way over here, so I better push us forward. But um, uh, do we have any other questions we wanted to tackle before we go into the picks? Because I do have one I think I'd like to cover. No, I'm ready to go to release candidate. Really? <laughs> yeah, nice. let's, let's ship it. Let's ship it. I do want to. I, I thought Josh uh, got one interesting question that he showed us. That was, um, uh, what if you have a gem that's like you know maybe the core of your system, and then you have the application you're building on top of that or whatever, and you're you know you're developing them both up at the same time. How do you manage that, and do you want to keep them you know like in sync as far as version or anything like that? I thought that was an interesting question. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think there's a slightly different way to look at that at that question about whether it's an application, et cetera. It, if you look at, a, say, a web API uh, like the, like OAuth, you know, which is a, a common uh, protocol on the web, and there are and the server or, or the provider has some sort of API that you have to talk to, and then there's say a Ruby gem that you run locally as part of your your client application to talk to the OAuth server. And that local gem is the implementation of talking to that API in Ruby. And the, and the question was about keeping those things in sync. And do you want the version number of the API and the version number of the, of the library that is, the, is uh, you know, your local way to talk to that web API? Are those version numbers the same? What if the, and, and I'll just throw out there, what if you have a bug in your Ruby, in your OAuth Ruby gem, mm-hmm. and then not and, in the API. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a yeah. I have a comment for this. Okay, um, it it um a really handy thing. Anytime you have two things that talk to each other, which may be versioned independently, one of the first things to add is a way for them to determine each other's version. Uh, you see this in a lot of Internet RFCs. So so HTTP. The thing that HTTP 1.0 added was the ability. A, they, the client and the server would tell each other which version of HTTP they support. You know, they were they were requesting and and replying with. And B, they would there was a mechanism built in for upgrading the connection. So you can so there was a way to say I support this. Do you support it too? If so, let's bump up. Um, 
And and that's that's the thing to add really early on, especially if like you have a gem client that that talks to a server, um, is just some way for them both to say what version are you, and then you know and and you know and and, a, and some kind of negotiation where where the gem can say I'm too old, I'm quitting, or the ser- you know the server says I'm too old, um, you know or something like that. Um, just you know, make that a, an early feature, and 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 it can solve a lot of problems down the road because you don't have 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 issues where you know the the wrong version of the gem is is talking to the wrong version on the server, and they don't know it. So just to be utterly specific about what I think we're saying here is, you really should treat them as two separate entities because they are. You know, mm-hmm. like like Josh said, you could have a bug in one that's not in the other. It just deals with how you're parsing arguments or, you know, sending up the message or something. So if you're going to follow semantic versioning, which obviously we've recommended, then you're going to need to be able to, you know, increment the patch number on one of them. And and Mm -hmm. otherwise you have to treat them as a whole and you'll need to release a new version of the other one that's not broken, which is just silly. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to I, keep them in lockstep. Just make sure they have a way to find out, and and you can yeah. do other things then because you can have the server offer older versions to if it if it senses an older client and stuff like that. Yeah. I have a a really good answer to what might be the wrong question uh, on this, uh, which is uh, specifically with regard to when you're doing development and you're on a team and you're also simultaneously developing a gem, you know, because you you've split some functionality out into a gem. And I did this on a, a project recently where uh, we basically we were we needed this tool to to help the project and the project needed the tool, but we wanted the tool to be open source and, and free. And the way uh, the, the two step negotiation for that that uh, we came up with is I have a uh, well I'll, I'll, I'll get to the gem the Git hook in a minute, but uh, what I did is uh, I split off the. The, the gem built the gem and I pushed it to GitHub, and I went into the gem file for the rest of the team and I basically said use the migratrix gem and here's the URL to it in on Git, and it would it would basically get the most recent version from Git or from yeah from GitHub every time that they ran bundle install, and that made it so that uh, I could go off into a story branch and do a story branch over on migratrix and add a new feature to migratrix and I could push it and they could use it, but at the same time. Uh, I needed to be able to make a change to my Gertrix locally and have it be immediately available in the client software. And um, the the trick for doing that is that if you look at the bundler documentation, you can instead of giving it a Git tag, uh, you can you can give it a Git tag instead of a version number. If you give it a version number, it goes to Ruby Ruby Gems and gets that. If you don't give it a, if you give it a Git tag, it goes to GitHub. You can also give it a path tag that will look for a gem file or a gem spec file on your local file system. And so I basically forked the gem file and on my local uh, copy version of the uh, the development project, it actually referred to the Migratrix path. And whenever I needed a new feature or needed to fix a bug in Migratrix, I would go over and do that. Um, now, the, the Git hook thing, obviously, if you're as absent-minded as me, you're going to end up committing the gem file. That, so now everybody is like, oh, crap, I've got this thing that, that needs a gem file out of Home D. Brady. Uh, what do I do? And I have a – maybe this will be my pick. Uh, I have a, a Git hook uh, that I wrote that uh, if you put a comment and in all caps you write no commit, um, Git will refuse to let you commit that file. And uh, it, it's it, – 
basically, if you need to change a file and have it be changed on your system but not pushed up, you just put that tag no commit in there. And that's that's how I kept myself from pushing my uh, monkey patched gem file up to the team. You're the kind of guy who puts um, a, a carton of milk that got that has gone bad back in the fridge with a post-it note on it saying don't uh, actually, actually, I'm the kind of guy that writes down on a, on a piece of paper, check to see if roommate gets sick, puts it in a sealed envelope, and puts it on his to-do list for next Friday, and then puts the milk back in the carton with no post-it note. <laughs> I never want to program with you. <laughs> nice. Just don't raid my fridge. Okay. okay. Or, so- d- or drink your milk. Yes. Okay. Okay, so so if we're getting close to to wrapping things up here, I will um, add a little bit of wisdom from uh, the days when I worked at Apple Computer, and uh, we actually had a, like a QA team that we worked with, and the letterhead that they sent around their emails with uh, it really embodied the, uh, you know what I think is the uh, the philosophy, of, the development philosophy at Apple Computer in the in the nineties and the eighties when I was working there. It's a, and it said Apple Computer, where quality is job one dot one dot one. Yes, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which is better than the little bumper sticker, or well, it wasn't a bumper sticker. It was the it was the Internet SIG going around in the mid nineties that said uh, Intel Intel computer where quality is job zero point nine 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 four eight one three two. Very good. <laughs> so, so, so it's interesting, you know. We, we you know one is supposed to be this awesome you know moment in the history of development of a process, of a product, and you know you release it and everything's wonderful. But then you look at how Microsoft made its uh, you know its empire, and that was basically re- releasing zero dot five quality software as one yep. and it and it's basically their their beta release, and they would let everyone find and fix their bugs uh, you know in public and charge them for the opportunity to do so. Josh, are you going for a record on the amount of hate mail you can get us? <laughs> Rails core team, Microsoft. Dude, dude who, who, who's pointing fingers? That was brilliant. Yes. It was. Actually, actually I'm going to back Josh up on this. I Has anybody heard the saying uh, 3.0 is the new 1.0? <laughs> no, but uh, I like it. It's I, I honestly have worked with people who literally wanted us to release version 3.0 first, like like the very first version need, needed to be called 3.0. And I said, why? It's still in version one. And he said, if Microsoft has taught us anything, is that the product is not stable and ready for public consumption until version three. <laughs> and, and I'm like, so what makes you think our 1.0 is ready? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it used it used to be that uh, you know, OS ten would come out with a new uh, major release, and with OS ten, the semver is all screwed up because the ten will never change. So the major releases are all the minor number. Yeah. So right. you, know, you got right. 10, 10.6 to ten point seven. That's a huge breaking com- backward compatibility, you know, major upgrade. Uh, it, but I so I always I'm not a I'm not a crazy early adopter when it comes to these OS rollouts. And I always let the, the crazy early adopters find the bugs for me because, because now Apple is following the, you know, the pattern that Microsoft set and, and they'll just roll out. <laughs> oh, OS 10.7.0. Oh, I'm not touching that. I'm waiting yep. for, for 10.7.1 or 10.7.2 even to make sure that they found all the corner cases and, there were significant problems with the 10.7.0 release where if you were doing Ruby development, you were kind of hosed. and yeah. you had. So it, it was definitely prudent to wait a little bit. 
I I personally have gone through the lion upgrade uh, and then, uh, oh crap, go find the Snow Leopard disc and uh, upgrade back to Snow Leopard with a time machine backup. And I'm still on Snow Leopard as a result, yeah. All right, guys, I would love to let us talk forever, but while Josh is getting hate mail from everybody, I'm going to be getting hate <laughs> mail from Chuck So okay. <laughs> on the size of this episode. So we're going into the picks now. Uh, David, you already kind of gave one pick. You want to give another one? Or- uh, yeah, Book Yourself Solid uh, by the guy that wrote it. By the guy <laughs> that wrote it? I yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's a consulting uh, thing. that short version of the book, if you reduce it down to two, two sentences, is um, be nice, make people happy to work with you, and then uh, leverage that and work that. Uh, it's 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 a guide for basically. I think we've somebody's already picked probably me. Get clients now. Um, I, I'm, I'm speaking to the independent contractors out there or the contractor wannabes out there. Uh, book yourself solid is a book uh, about how to basically if you hate marketing, how to uh, find clients that you love and want to engage with uh, without actually doing the sleazy slimy side of marketing. And uh, speaking of that, I. Uh, I've had a couple of people contact me in the past couple of weeks because uh, I mentioned that I was looking for employees, and I misspoke. I am looking for contractors. Um, I, I I got taken to task for for misusing that word. Uh, I'm not big enough to be looking for employees. We are looking for uh, you know contractors, and we've recently taken on a couple of Rails Rescue projects where we kind of unscrew your uh, Rails project. And if anybody out there. We were getting pretty good at it, so if anybody out there's got a Rails project that's screwed up, give me a holler. All right, and I'll- did you see? I totally shilled myself in my pick. That's awesome. And James is like, edit this out. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it just made me think. Wow, I can do that too. Abdi, um, <laughs> <laughs> your picks. All right. Um, this is another of those those picks that I could swear I did this before, but I couldn't find it in the list. So uh, the the gem Faraday, Faraday is sort of, if you took rack and you turned it upside down so that you could use it on the client side uh, instead of the server side. It is a uh, abstraction layer for HTTP cli- uh, client libraries. It lets you plug in whichever uh, client library you want. And talk to them all the same way. So you can talk to to uh, NetHttp or Typhoeus or Patron or or uh, EMHttp or whatever else. Uh, you can talk to them all the same way using the same API. Uh, but more importantly, it gives you a middleware layer, so you can um, you can take whatever adapter you have on the end of the chain, and then you can plug in. Uh, any kind of intermediaries in between your requests. So, for instance, if you decide, hey, I want to start, I want to start caching all of my API requests. Uh, you can, in, instead of changing the way you call the APIs, you can just, you can just jam in a new middleware into the uh, Faraday stack, which handles caching. Um, so, super handy for programming against HTTP APIs. Um, Secondly, um, which is and this is is kind of a um, not a specific thing. Um, I want to pick gem maintainers. Um, I will confess to being really bad at maintaining gems. Uh, I create them, and um, and then like once you know once I get my idea out there or I get the thing that I need to use, uh, they're kind of boring to me. 
So I, you know, I have a bunch of gems that I don't um, take as good care of as I should. And, um, and there, there are people out there that have this amazing quality of, of just being, of being good at maintaining gems. And so uh, like uh, Myron Marston took over NullDB for me. Uh, Josh Nichols has given me some help with a few of my gems. And most recently, Larry Marburger has uh, took, took on the task of actually uh, extracting out a gem from a project that I was working on um, and, and doing the, the grunt work of, of turning it into a gem in its own right. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these people are great to have. And if, if you're looking for, a, for, for one good reason to be nice to your uh, gem users, it's that uh, you might be lucky enough that one of them will step in and become a maintainer uh, when you don't have the time to uh, maintain a gem anymore. Here, here for using other people. Yay. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I guess I'll go next since I wanted to comment on uh, some of the things I've just said. Uh, one of the things about Faraday, I got a funny story about that. Um, I uh, uh, used Faraday in one of my examples at uh, Ruby Midwest, um, and I actually showed how I was doing all these requests, and then I just made one tiny change, and all of a sudden they were all parallel. Um, and uh, uh, Technoweeny posted after that, uh, uh, James just showed off how to do parallel requests in Faraday, and I don't think I know how to do that. <laughs> so, but to be fair, I had to like read a lot of source to figure that out, so uh, it was not easy. Um, anyways, uh, my own picks. Um, I'm going to go for my first pick. I'm going to go uh, with LASIK surgery. I think I, I mentioned that uh, I had it done... Uh, back in November, so if I'm picking it now, this should be a good clue to anybody listening. Uh, it, it really did take me about two months to get what I would call comfortable with it. Uh, I was seeing pretty good right after about 20-25 within the first week, um, but I, I did have a minor complication that had to work itself out over time, and so it kind of took a while to um, get to the point where I was comfortable with it. Uh, but I have to say it, it is an amazing thing. I mean, uh, you go in, you know, I was, I was on the operating table 12 minutes. I never felt anything you would call pain and they just like flipped a switch and fixed my moderately bad eyes, you know? And, uh, you know, I, when I was young, I, having glasses didn't really bother me and, and, uh, it didn't really affect me much. But as I got older, it was like, hey, it just got more annoying every day, you know, I happened to keep track of glasses, keep them clean, all that kind of crap. So uh, just not having to do that is amazing, uh, and it's really great. My wife had it done uh, in December, and, and she's, you know, uh, almost even with me because she didn't have the complications. So uh, it does take a while. There's still a few nagging minor complaints I have that I'm told will probably ease up over time. Uh, so just don't think that, you know, yeah, it, it's one of those things where you do it the next day, you're great. Uh, but it, it is pretty cool. Uh, if you haven't looked into it in a long time, uh, uh, you know, it used to be they, they cut a flap in your eye with a microkeratome, I think. And uh, now they're, I have bladeless LASIK, so you never even have to have a blade on your eye. They just uh, wow. make the flap with another laser. And uh, it's pretty pretty impressive stuff uh, that we can do yay science right that's cool uh, yeah i I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh using using stem cells from your own cornea to clone up new corneas mm -hmm. my family 
my family is a history of cataracts, so I'm hoping in like 20 years I'll be able to just get new corneas and not have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, it's it's yeah. amazingly cool stuff. So my wife had uh, really bad vision. In fact, she's like right on the borderline of uh, what LASIK can even do. And it's only because she basically met all the other criteria perfectly huh. uh, that they even did her. Um, but, I mean, you're talking about somebody who has to buy the highest level of thin glasses just so, you know, they're not ridiculous. Um, and mm-hmm. they, you know, she was, she her surgery took a little longer than mine, maybe 20 minutes, you know. And then, you know, she's a couple weeks out now and seeing great without glasses. You know, it's That's like awesome. amazing stuff. Yay. That's we're, awesome. All, we're, all, we're all cyborgs now. That's right. That's right. So if you want some cybernetic upgrades, I recommend LASIK. Um, my other pick uh, today is um, I'm I'm gonna do a self-serving pick, so feel free <laughs> to tune me out uh, if that if that blah 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 blah. blah, blah, blah. Um, I've been writing this series of articles called "Rubies in the Rough," and um, uh, everybody's always asking me, you know, how I think about things or do things, and uh, I am trying to write all that down, uh, code it up, and and tell you how I think about things. Um, so these articles are uh, kind of unusual in that I don't just show Ruby features or something like that. I um, I actually tell you how I'm thinking about things, how I do experimentation, how I uh, handle the rules of programming, how I do refactoring, uh, all that kind of things. And I'm, I'm trying to help people understand how I think about problems instead of uh, you know, specifically syntax and stuff like that, which is always easy to come across. So that's if, cool. If that kind of thing sounds interesting to you, I've been writing, uh, writing them for a while today or a while now. I release three a month. Uh, I'll release another one today. Um, so uh, there's lots of great articles out there, and they, uh, you know, people have been uh, talking about them and stuff. But it's not free. I do charge a little bit uh, for the article, six dollars a month. So it's like two bucks an article. Um, so anyways, cool. that's my self-serving pick of the day. But if it's the kind of thing awesome. that interests you, I, I hope it, you would like it. That's and I just want to, I just want to add that, um, every one that I've read so far, I've learned something from Yay. usually a few things. All right. That's it. I'm, I'm signing up. Okay. okay so, uh, we haven't had Josh do his picks. Okay, great. Um, I, I totally wimped out on picks last week, so um, I have all sorts of goodies this week, starting with errata. Uh, so uh, last week in the bonus feature, uh, I misspoke, and I was comparing uh, the silly names of gems, and I was talking about rack rewrite. And I said versus informal, but I actually meant refraction. So taking the opportunity to correct myself and, to, and hopefully I haven't uh, confused anyone really horribly, and they're trying to use informal to rewrite URLs. So, uh, okay. Um, my first pick is for Code Climate. So there, you can go to codeclimate.com. And uh, David, do you remember uh, a couple weeks ago we were doing the uh, profiling uh, performance yeah. benchmarking stuff? And you said, why don't we have tools for benchmarking the, you know, like the complexity of things rather yeah. than, than the performance? So Code, yeah. cli- code Climate is what you want. Oh, it's, hell yes. Yeah, so you... You take your GitHub repo, you hook it up to codeclimate.com, you give it you like you, you give it a deploy key and a and a integration hook in GitHub, and then every time you push something up to GitHub, CodeClimate notices your changes and it goes and it gives you a report on how cool your code is or how uncool it is. And it tells things like the complexity of the code, it finds repetition across various classes where you might want to extract things into modules and to dry it up. 
and um, you know churn hot spots. Mm-hmm. It it's pretty um, it's pretty cool. So I've, I'm uh, th- I'm using it now. I'm just starting to get into it, but it's like I, I hooked it up and immediately I started seeing things that I could improve in my code. The um, the guy behind it is Brian Helmkamp. He's uh, he's spoken at Golden Gate Ruby conference and a bunch of other conferences, and mm-hmm. he's he's uh, written a lot of great code and been a a big player in the Ruby community. So I definitely appreciate him and support his work, and I hope that uh, Code Climate goes on to be a success because so far I've been really pleased with it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, check that out. Um, I and then I have a fun pick, which is. Um, an old comic book that I just recently reread, and I, I love it more every time I reread it. It's called The Invisibles by Grant Morrison. And this came out in the 90s. It's it's a really hard comic book to describe, but it's been republished as, I think, seven volumes of graphic novels. And it's basically a bunch of like weirdo, uh, hippie, uh, anarchist freedom fighters who are up against the uh, like the mystical conspiracy that's trying to control everybody in the world, hmm. and and it's it's really smart. The they have they have like incredibly bizarre characters, like this young street punk from Liverpool who's the new Buddha, um, a Brazilian drag queen bruja witch, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, telepaths from the future. It's just you know. Uh, James Bond with a shaved head and and uh, tantric powers. So it's it's a lot of fun. I love reading it. It's really worth going back and checking it out. Um, and uh, yeah, so have have fun with that. I totally want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, James yeah. Bond with a shaved head and tantric powers. That's yeah. That's kind of naughty. I like it. Yeah, yeah. So he had me a Brazilian drag queen. Just saying. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, and and then I I gotta put a, I gotta put a little note in here saying how excited I am that they're now filming a new um, a new season of Red Dwarf. Oh, you're kidding me. No, I'm not. Oh yeah. <laughs> if if you if you lived in in London now, you could you could get um, tickets to go watch the filmings. They're going oh. on right now. Yeah. I'm yes. I'm excited. Honey, can we move to London? <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I've bungled along this episode as much as I possibly can, and taking us out is is just too much for me. So luckily, Chuck has flown in to save the day, and will now close this episode. Woo! It's me. Um, so a couple of things that I wanted to uh, tell you about real quick. First off. We are doing our book club on February 22nd. We're going to be doing A Land of Lisp. Best and book club ever. It is going to be an awesome book club. And tell them why. Tell them why it's the best book club ever. Because I still need to start the book. Because Conrad Barsky gave us... A discount code, that's right. Um, yes. If you go to nostarch.com and you use the code RubyRogues, it, it'll give you 30% off the book. This Ruby Rogues is all one word. No, not ten, not twenty, but thirty percent off. Thirty. Right. But wait, that's not all. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, we just uh, another thanks to Conrad. He's been really cool about uh, helping us, um, you know, get our hands on the book and everything. So uh, yeah, so if you want to go buy the book, uh, go to nostarch.com. Ruby Rogues is your 
uh, code and you get 30% off. Um, he said the discount code is good through the end of July. So if you're listening to this after we recorded it, you can still get it for a discount. Mm-hmm. Um, another announcement that I want to make is that I have recruited Yehuda Cats. Um, there's a local um, JavaScript wizard named AJ O'Neill that Dave knows. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> and then we also have Peter Cooper from the JavaScript Show and JavaScript Weekly. Um, he's also been on this podcast uh, several times. Uh, we are starting a podcast like this where we're talking about JavaScript, and you can. Uh, oh, I don't cool. have I don't have the website up yet. But it's going to be called JavaScript Jabber, and mm-hmm. uh, we will be starting it next week. So keep That's an eye cool. out for that. And so, uh, so you guys are going to be jabberers, uh, something like that. Okay. Yep. So yep. yeah, Chuck, you're not doing enough podcasts. You should do some more. I know. I should get to work right. Yeah. Seriously. Um, yeah. Well, I'm actually putting together a podcast network page thing, kind of like Five by Five TV. And uh, so we will be pulling all of the podcasts into that. Yeah, I, I wait, I, I'm waiting for you to do the podcast about podcasting. Awesome. I've been tempted. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, so that, that's what's going on. And uh, again, um, as, as per normal, we would really appreciate any reviews that you have for this podcast um, on iTunes. You can follow us on Ruby Rogues or on Twitter at rubyrogues.com. And finally, we have our first sponsor, um, and that is New Relic. Yeah. Uh, so, so if you want uh, statistics Woo-hoo. on how your app's performing, you can go to newrelic.com and check them out. Uh, we will get a, a link up on the website, and uh, after that, it'd be nice if you click that because that actually tells them that you came from us. That's so, right. if you've got the old relic, get rid of that crap. Get the new relic. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was actually using it last week to speed up some uh, requests for one of my clients, and it's a pretty cool tool. So it's, mm-hmm. it's nice, and and and. Little bit of trivia about New Relic. The name of the company is an anagram of the founder's name. Sweet. Oh, really? Yeah, Lucerne. Uh-huh. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> moving right along. All right, so so that's all I've got. Um, anything else you guys want to bring up before we wrap this up? I, I have one last thing, and that's just I, I want to say uh, we've talked about yak shaving in the past, and I want to say that. That, you know, in rewatching an episode of Cosmos, I I noticed the greatest yak shave ever, in which Carl Sagan said, "In order to bake an apple pie from scratch, you uh-huh. must first create the universe." Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. And by the way, by the way, Cosmos is absolutely awesome. If you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. But they're also remaking it with yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is yes. basically the modern day Carl Sagan. So that is awesome. Yes. Cool. You know, with as many Rubyists that are shaving yaks, there ought to be a yak swim team out there somewhere. <laughs>